Welcome to SNC's podcast series, SNC Critical Insights. I'm Melissa Sawyer, Global Head of MA at SNC. And with me today are my partners, Renata Hesse and Juan Rodriguez. Renata and Juan co head our antitrust group. And in light of recent developments in the Illumina Grail situation, I thought it might be interesting to hear from them about how those developments might impact MA deals going forward. So, Renata, why don't we start with you and you can give us an update on what's been happening in the U.S. on the Illumina Grail situation. Sure, Melissa, and thanks. Uh, it's great to be here with you guys. So this is a matter that's taken a fair amount of twists and turns in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., and Juan is going to cover outside of the U.S., it started with the FTC lodging an objection to the transaction, which is a vertical merger between Illumina and uh, Grail. And Illumina makes these very high-tech genetic sequencing machines. And Grail makes also very high-tech cancer screening tests that you can do just by checking someone's blood. And in order for Grail's tests to work, they need to be used the sequencing machines that Illumina makes. And the FTC decided that this was a vertical transaction that would cause harm to competition in what they call the downstream market for these cancer tests that Grail makes. So that means that they thought that when Grail and Illumina combined, Grail's competitors would be disadvantaged vis-a-vis their access to Illumina's gene sequencing machines. So the FTC filed what they usually do. Uh, They filed a a district court action seeking a preliminary injunction. And they also filed a proceeding in their own administrative court. And the FTC can't keep parties from merging using just their administrative process. And so what they do is they usually seek a preliminary injunction from the district court that keeps the status quo in place. So the parties are unable to merge the transaction while the administrative proceeding proceeds. In the midst of the preliminary injunction proceeding, however, the European Commission took jurisdiction of the transaction, and Juan's going to explain why that was an unusual step. And typically, in those situations, when another authority has what we call suspensory jurisdiction, so they can stop a transaction from closing, The U.S. agencies then don't need an injunction because the parties are prevented from closing the transaction somewhere else. And so the FTC, in view of the uh, ongoing proceeding in Europe, which should have kept the transaction from closing, uh, voluntarily dismissed uh, without prejudice their uh, injunction proceeding in district court and just reverted to the administrative trial that they were pursuing. In the midst of that, preparing for the administrative trial, Illumina and Grail took the unprecedented step of closing the transaction, notwithstanding the fact that the European Commission had an open suspensory investigation involving the transaction. This is an incredibly unusual thing to do. They agreed, in view of the European Commission's investigation, to hold the two companies separate notwithstanding having closed the transaction itself. In the U.S., the parties and the FTC proceeded to go on to an administrative trial, which happened uh, in early in the year. And then about uh, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe just about 10 days ago, actually, the administrative law judge who was hearing the FTC's trial entered an order 
against the FTC's case and declining to prohibit the transaction. So the judge found that the transaction did not violate Section 7 of the Clayton Act, relying in large part on a commitment that Illumina had made to a so-called open offer that Illumina had made to Braille's competitors uh, relating to access to Illumina's uh, gene sequencing machines. And the public opinion was just released at the end of last week, on Friday, September 9th. And so it's a very long opinion. But almost immediately after that, the sites shifted to Europe, where Juan is going to take you in terms of what the European Commission did next. Thank you, Renata. I think it's fair to say that this case is the big case of the moment in Brussels, at least in the merger world, really for for two reasons. The first is that it's the test case for the European Commission applying a new policy, a policy that it announced about two years ago, which essentially expanded the European Commission's merger review jurisdiction to cover transactions that did not meet the merger filing thresholds that require parties to make a filing with the Commission. In mechanistic terms, the EU merger rules provide for a clear split of jurisdiction. Transactions that meet revenue thresholds go to the EU Commission and cannot be looked at by the national competition authorities in the European Union. And conversely, transactions that do not meet those European thresholds cannot be reviewed by the European Commission and can only be reviewed by authorities in the member states. But like all good legal rules, there's an exception to that apparently clear split of jurisdiction in that in case-by-case circumstances, specific circumstances, member states' competition authorities that have jurisdiction over a merger because it doesn't meet the EU thresholds can refer it, can transfer their jurisdiction to the European Commission. And the European Commission can invite member states to do that if it wants to get its hands on a transaction that otherwise escapes its jurisdiction. This mechanism has not been used very often, once, maybe twice at maximum each year. And the Commission's policy historically was that even though the European legislation didn't prevent member states from referring to the Commission transactions that did not meet their national merger filing thresholds, as a matter of practice, the European Commission discouraged that type of referral. The Commission wasn't really interested in transactions that did not meet even the national filing thresholds. The Commission changed that policy about two years ago and published a set of guidelines explaining its change of policy to the effect that for certain types of transactions, the Commission would no longer apply the same policy and would discourage member states from making referrals because the Commission saw this referral mechanism as a way of allowing it to take jurisdiction over transactions that may not have met the revenue thresholds that required mandatory filing with it or with the member states' authorities, but which could have a significant effect on competition. And in particular, the Commission was interested in transactions in the technology and pharmaceutical sectors, particularly transactions that could have a dampening effect on innovation. 
So this case is the first time that change in policy has been given effect to by the Commission and by the member states. And essentially, what happened was the Commission took an interest in the transaction and started a dialogue with the member states, which led to five member states making referral requests to the Commission, which the Commission accepted and thereby took jurisdiction over a transaction for the first time that did not meet the EU thresholds or even the member state thresholds. That decision was, of course, controversial, and Illumina appealed it in the General Court of the European Union, sought to have it annulled, judicially reviewed. The court categorically threw out Illumina's appeal and upheld the Commission's right to exert jurisdiction in this way. Now, Illumina has appealed that judgment to the European Court of Justice, and we'll see what that court says. But at least for now, the Commission's policy to look at these transactions through this referral mechanism has been validated legally by the General Court. The second unusual feature of this case is one to which Renata has already alluded, which is that the parties intentionally closed the transaction midway through the EU Commission's review. And that's never happened before in Europe. Even though the EU Commission has fined companies for so-called gun jumping in the past, it's never been as flagrant as the parties had notified the transaction, and therefore was subject to the legal waiting period, but then intentionally closed it before the Commission had granted approval. And that'll be interesting because the Commission, understandably, has started a gun jumping investigation against Illumina and will impose a fine on Illumina. The Commission can fine up to 10% of Illumina's global revenue. And no doubt, the fine the Commission imposes here will be the highest that it has ever for so-called gun jumping because of the intentional and flagrant nature of Illumina's conduct. So Juan and Renata, can you speak to whether these decisions are likely to have a chilling effect on M&A activity? And I'm particularly focused on the pharma and tech sectors for that question. I think that this change in policy needs to be taken into consideration by parties in those sectors. I think that the world is somewhat different now, that this mechanism clearly can be applied, and the Commission has shown an appetite to apply it in those sectors. So it's clearly something that companies in these sectors who are looking to merge need to take into consideration. The Commission has said that this isn't going to be the opening of the floodgates, that they will investigate multiple transactions in these sectors. They said this is more of a targeted instrument that they will use judiciously. But I think it does put these sectors in particular, not exclusively, but in particular on notice that in certain circumstances, there is a risk of referral. And those circumstances are not entirely obvious. There is a, not quite a checklist, but there are certain key circumstances that would point to a higher likelihood of this risk materializing than others. It clearly creates a degree of legal uncertainty that didn't exist before. And Juan, just to build on that comment, is that legal uncertainty something that you're seeing parties try to address in M&A contracts? It's certainly something that is being thought about by contract negotiators, and, and I, I would expect to see provisions being put in contracts to try to address it. Now, whether those provisions withstand a full negotiation is to be seen. Clearly, it's more of a 
of a buyer's risk than a seller's risk. But I would expect to see provisions being put in if the transaction is one that could be higher on the risk spectrum. Renata, anything you would add to that discussion from a U.S. perspective? From a U.S. perspective, I think we'll probably see a couple of things. And I'm going to comment mostly on you know people's expectations of what they will see in terms of the agency's activity and then how that plays on into the M&A agreements that, uh, that, that, that get negotiated. I think we will see a, a, a definite unwillingness on the parties, on the, on the Federal Trade Commission, that is, to rely on the suspensory authority of another jurisdiction in order to prevent a transaction from closing. This was a, you know, a pretty significant embarrassment for the FTC to find itself in a situation where they had voluntarily dismissed the case and then uh, to have the parties close. And the fact that the parties closed the transaction you know, has had tremendous follow-on implications for uh, how everything has played out because since the transaction is closed, they don't really have to worry anymore about holding the transaction together through a lengthy regulatory process. And so that's given, I think, the parties more resilience in terms of appealing decisions from the FTC and from the European Commission, as Mon has described. You know, I think they have a long, long road of litigation ahead of them. And I think it's an unusual buyer and, frankly, an unusual seller who is going to be prepared not only to deal with the potential fines and blowback from the regulatory agencies for, as Juan put it, having flagrantly disregarded the agency's rules, but also just to you know have this situation in place where the future of, of the target is kept in doubt for so long. In terms of transactions, I think I would say, you know, in the negotiation, I think I would say we shouldn't make too much of this. I think it's a pretty unusual sort of perfect storm of, of different factors, including, as I said, a buyer that is um, aggressive and willing to take, I think, some uh, risks that other buyers wouldn't be willing to take. An agency that was really uh, on the FTC side prepared to move very quickly, and the, and the process did move very quickly. And an unusual set of facts where you have this entity that's being acquired that, although it, it doesn't have any revenues or didn't have any revenues at the time, clearly had some contacts with member states that were um, at least significant in the view of the, of the member states. So it's an important thing to be aware of and to be mindful of as you think about the regulatory risk associated with your transaction. But I don't think this is a mechanism or a tool that the European Commission is going to take, you know, going to be using with great frequency. I think they are going to be looking for cases where they have a, a buyer that is has a, you know, a very strong uh, market position, as Illumina did. And there's a real identified threat to innovation that, uh, that the agency is able to identify. Thank you both, Juan and Renata. That was super interesting and very timely. And thank you for listening to SNC Critical Insights. For more information about our practice, please visit us on the web at www.sulcrom.com. Mm-hmm.